This month, we are doing something a little bit different. Rabbi Botnik prepared something absolutely exquisite and wonderful. And of course, he has a very high bar of what it means to be exquisite and wonderful. Uh, this podcast is going to orient not around the month of Nisan, the month that we're in right now, the month, of course, that we have the festival of Pesach, but it's going to focus more on the Haggadah. Of course, the Haggadah is the book that navigates us through the Seder. It tells, of course, the story of the Exodus, among many other things. And Rabbi Botnik prepared something absolutely ingenious, as we have come to expect from him. So here we are, getting ready for Pesach, and no better way to do that than to study the Haggadah on a deeper level, to plumb the depths and the mysteries behind the scenes with Rabbi Shmuley Botnik, or as we now call him on the podcast, Shmuley, welcome Rabbi Botnik to this wonderful podcast. Thank you, Rabbi Wolby. Um, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, I will say that I, I usually am kind of confident about the ideas I'm going to share. This time, not really, and it's almost intentionally so. I want it to be a conversation that has a lot of loose ends, let our listeners weigh in with their own thoughts. Uh, I'm just kind of giving you some food for thought. That's really the agenda of the day. I'm very excited about it. Let's begin. Okay. So we'll use as our starting point the story that is brought down in the Haggadah about Rabbi Akiva and his fellow rabbis. So I think the list is Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Kiva, and Rabbi Tarfon. So that's like a real all-star team of Tanoim. And what we are told is really nothing too significant. Uh, it's, it's kind of weird trying to even understand what this story is all about. These five very great rabbis gathered together in Bnei Brak, which Rabbi will be correct me if I'm wrong, was Bnei Brak not the city of Rabbi Akiva? Did he not live in Bnei Brak? Yeah, he was the rabbi of this city of Bnei Brak, and we have this incredible ensemble of sages gathering together for uh, Pesach Seder, and that is recounted and retold and immortalized in the Haggadah. So when we begin our Seder, we read about this story of the Seder that happened in Bnei Brak, where Rabbi Akiva was the rabbi, together with these four other sages, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, and Rabbi Tarfon. Okay, and then the rest of the story is very very straightforward and very short. It just says they basically uh, discussed the episode of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, what, what you're supposed to do on the night of Pesach. The Exodus. And they went through... The whole night long, all the way till the morning, until their students came and said, Rabbis, it has come time to recite the Kriya Shema of the morning. Yigyazma and Kriya Shema. So this, is, this is like, you know, if we're going to start telling over the story of the Exodus, which is, of course, the mitzvah of the Haggadah and of the Seder, is to retell, to relive the story of the Exodus. We have this model of what it looks like. You know, we, you finish... People want to finish 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. They went the whole night telling over the story, and uh, they were still in the middle of telling the story. When it's ready in the morning, it's time to say the Shema. Of course, uh, to recite the Shema is, uh, is a mitzvah in the Torah, and there's a deadline by which you have to say it. And the students are, are, are interrupting, so to speak, this incredible discussion about the Exodus by telling them that the time to recite the Shema has arrived. You have to end the Seder. 
That's right. And now, I, I don't really have any problems with the story, per se. I just, I think there are a few curious points to acknowledge, at least. Number one, when was the last time you noticed four of the leading rabbis all leaving their hometowns, where presumably they were leaders of their own communities, to go spend Pesach by a different rabbi? It's, I mean, maybe Rabbi Kiva, you could argue, was the greatest of them, but they all were uh, fantastic scholars in their own right. Why did they feel it necessary to spend Pesach by Rabbi Akiva? Right? So that's yeah, Pesach is the time to spend with your family and with your community. And if I'm not mistaken, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua were both the teachers of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Tarfon was more of a contemporary uh, to Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Elizabeth Azari is, is younger than, I believe he's younger than Rabbi Akiva, or maybe the same, uh, the same generation. But what are they all doing in the location, in the town of Rabbi Akiva? It's a great mystery. Okay, that's question number one. Another question I want to point out is, what's this? The, the students come, they say, Rabbis, the, the time to recite Kriyashma has come. That's kind of waxing poetic. Why don't they just say, it's morning, <laughs> the sun is shining, right? What's this whole idea of it has come the time to recite Kriyashma? Yeah, it's implied that they would have gone the whole day as well uh, to retell the story. And uh, somehow the, the Shema is the point that changes or ends, uh, punctuates, concludes the Seder, this, uh, this incredible Seder uh, in the city of Bnei Brak. Okay, so these two questions, which again, they're not absolutely mind-blowing questions, but we're going to use them as a springboard to offer an idea which is somewhat uh, fantastic and hopefully we'll have our listeners weigh in on their own thought with their own thoughts. Um, let's begin with with the beginning. We are taught that we're supposed to begin the Seder which means that the model that the Seder is supposed to follow is that we begin by addressing or discussing the, the more the murkier, components of our history and then move along to the more joyous and more exalted point in history, i.e. we're supposed to begin with the story of Terach, Avi Avram, which we mentioned in the Haggadah, that is the father of Avram who was an idolater himself, who sold idols by profession. And then we move along through history till we get to the point of the exodus from Egypt, where the Jewish people are united in their servitude of God. So that's what we're taught. That's the model that they have got. So we, we don't start off with the highlights, with the apex, with the apotheosis of our history. We start off with the shameful origins. You know, Abraham, this great titan, but well, where did he come from? His father was Terach, a real lousy guy by our standards, you know, idolater, but not just an idolater, a purveyor of idolatry. And that's really the shameful origin of our nation. We're not, uh, we're not so excited about that. But that's how we start off. And we build up, and we, we build up, and we end, so to speak, on a high point. We climax uh, with the uh, incredible accomplishments and uh, levels of greatness that our nation achieved with the Exodus. So that's the, the format. That's right. Now, I think we have the license to suggest that on a slightly more philosophical level, it's not just a matter of the recitation, but that's really the transformation that we're experiencing. There's this like little space little spark, or maybe spark isn't the right word, but a little drop of, a little poison of, of terach still inside of us, that little idolater that, that has remained. And the name of the game on the night of Pesach is to try to move away from it and to, to graduate that um, 
less dignified, less noble history that we had to move away from there uh, and into a, a, a holier destiny. That's the idea of the Night of Pesach. This, this is a very advanced point, that it's not just the story that we're retelling starts off with less admirable parts of our nation's history and proceeds and concludes with the highlights, but that's really what we're supposed to experience on Pesach. We all have a little drop, so to speak, of Terach within us. There, there's there's parts of us that are also not so admirable. And over the course of the Pesach Seder, if I'm understanding you correctly, we're supposed to kind of elevate and ascend above that and emerge from it just as the nation emerges from the story at a much higher point. That is correct. So I, so I feel. Again, I haven't seen that, but so I feel. And I think that is well within our right to argue. Now, but here's my question. How did that happen? How, did it, how does it happen that Terach, the father of Avram, remained within us? I mean, did Avram not overcome the entirety of the inclination for idolatry? I would have thought he did. Uh, if he didn't, why not? Uh, so in other words... So your question, if I'm understanding correctly, is that, you know, Abraham is, is the greatest of all men, or one of the greatest of all men, the, the, the giant among humans... And you would think that he had totally expunged all influences of Terach, his father. You can't blame someone for their father, right? You don't choose your father. He happened to have had a pretty rotten father from a a, a religious, moral, um, faith perspective. And, uh, you know, he became this prophet and God speaks to him. There's no vestiges of Terach left, apparently. That's your question. But somehow we get to the Pesach Seder and we invoke Terach as if somehow Terach is still present and still needs to be expunged. Is that your question? That is my question. That is right. So we're going to have to identify some some glitch in the system where Terach managed to somehow slip in to our destiny, to our history, to our story. All right. I'm very, very curious to hear how that happened. <laughs> okay, so now this is wild. Much further on in the story, um, so way after Terach, well, after Terach and Avram, they, they pass away, all the way into Parshas Vayishlach. Yeah, Parshas Vayishlach. This is where Yaakov Avinu is on his way back from Lavan, right? He worked for, what was it, 14 years by the house of his father-in-law. 14 years plus, plus six. Right, yeah. right. 14 years to marry uh, Rachel and Leah. We know that story. Spent a long time there. Had 11 out of his 12 children. But actually, 12 out of his 13 children. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and he's on his way back to Israel where he hopes to reunite with his father, Isaac. Uh, well, the reason I say he already had 12 children is because he had 11 sons and one daughter. Right? He had the 11 sons. Uh, Binyamin wasn't born yet. But he had 11 out of the 12 sons, and then he had a daughter by the name of Dina. Okay, now she's going to be the main character uh, in this story that we're about to address. And that is that Dina, it says, uh, and she like left, Dina. she started scouting out the surroundings. And sure enough, she is spotted by the, uh, like the son of the, the king or the prince of, of that locale, of the city of Shechem. And he likes her a lot. He's very attracted to her. He, I guess he, he rapes her, essentially, or at least convinces her to have relations with him. 
this is considered to be a terrible grievance uh, against the Jewish people, uh, or at least you know the, the sons of Jacob, and ultimately they attack him, they, they kill him and, and the entire city. That's the long and short of it. Now, Darizal lets us in on a little bit of the mystery of the story, and he says that Dina was the Gilgal, the reincarnation of Abraham's mother. Get that? Okay, Abraham's mother, so Terach's wife. Terach's wife, exactly. Terach's wife, Abraham's mother. Her soul gets reincarnated in Jacob's daughter, Dina. So if you do the math, Abraham's mother, and then there's Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Dina. So what's that, her great-great-granddaughter? Great-great-great-granddaughter? Whatever it is. That's right, yeah. So the soul of... Abraham's mother, who I don't believe is mentioned in the Torah, is that right? We don't know. No, certainly not by name, no. So we, we, we know that his father is Terach. He's got two brothers, right? Haran and Nachar. We read about that a little bit in the end of Parshas and Parshas uh, Noach. And the soul, we're told, the Arizal, the Kabbalists tell us, this is an interesting thing. We learned it now for the first time. The Kabbalists tell us that the soul of Abraham's mother the wife of Terach, Mrs. Terach, that is featured in Dina, the daughter of Jacob. Okay, wow. You have, you have my attention. <laughs> now, it gets better. Says the result that there was a problem with Abraham's mother and the conception of Abraham in the sense that Abraham's mother and his mom and his dad, Terach and Mrs. Terach, they conceived Abraham in a way that is not halachically permissible. Rabbi Wobi, maybe just give a quick rundown on, on the laws of Nida. I know that's, this is not the time and place for it, but just a small explanation for what should have happened and what, what didn't happen. Yeah, by, by our law, the, the Torah tells us that when a woman's menstruating, she must separate from her husband, and relations is forbidden during that time, and there's a whole process of purification. And um, that, that's the, the woman goes to the mikvah, prepares for it, goes to the mikvah, and uh, the normal relations between husband and wife can be resumed. And if, um, if, a, if a woman does not do that, does not follow these laws, then the Talmud tells us, our sources tell us, there's something problematic about that union, and children born from that union will be somehow spiritually flawed. That's right. Now, says the Arizal that that is why Dina, her name, is the same letters as the word Nida, because she is here to correct, to remedy, the spiritual harm that was done by the relations between Terach and his wife while, uh, while Mrs. Terach was still impure. So, so she's there to remedy, but she's also uh, 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 a remnant of the flaw. That's right. Maybe that's that's right. She thing. is a remnant of the flaw. She encases the flaw to a degree. And that's where Shechem comes in. Now, this is a very uh, a Kabbalistic idea, which is that impurity is attracted to impurity. So if there's, if there's something wrong inside of you, then obviously it's not, it's not something you intentionally pursue. But should that flaw come into contact with something else that's flawed, it will actually be constructive on your part. It will be beneficial because that impure, flawed injection that you are grappling with, it has now escaped. And it has been, it has been vacuumed out by 
the other source. So in other words, just in, in this case, it would be Shechem has relations with Dina. Shechem, being entirely impure, managed to somehow extract that flaw of Terach's mom that was inside of Dina. Is that understandable? Okay, well, you have to slow the break it down for me. So, so Shechem, it's well documented that he's flawed. And he has this magnetic attraction to Dina. And somehow with their union, he saps out, so to speak, that flaw that's somehow a remnant of Abraham's mom and her relationship with Terah. Is that what you're telling me? Is this what the Rizal says? Is this what the Kabbalists say? Yeah. I will say that I, I saw, I didn't say in the Rizal itself, I saw in the Sefer Chida, brings it from the Rizal, but let's just work with yes. that. Yes, attributed to the Rizal. Yeah. Okay. So the, the Shechem Dina incident, ultimately, as, as negative as it is, ultimately has a positive, a positive effect in that it allows us to sh- offshore this Terach, Mrs. Terach, uh, unfortunate reality that we had to contend with all those years. It's now evaporated. Because now, I, I do recall, and sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I do recall a reading that uh, there was some sort of holiness also featured in Shechem, the rapist of Dina. There was this holy soul of Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, and she somehow extracted that, which I, I believe is also a courtesy of, of Ariza. Very advanced uh, stuff here. But uh, to, to this point, Terach and Terach's wife, there's something flawed, there's some sort of spiritual flaw, and that flaw is is hovering, is present somehow in Dina. And when Dina gets together with Shechem, incidentally in the city of Shechem, which is a little bit confusing, in the city of Shechem, Shechem, the son of Hamor, in the city of Shechem, when he assaults Dina, he, like you said, offshores, or he extracts, he expunges that spiritual malady, that spiritual flaw that was present in Dina, courtesy of Abraham's mother, Mrs. Terach. Okay, perfect. Now, I, I do have a problem with this Arizal, in the sense that I, I have, there's another Arizal which seems to almost contradict this one, but we're going to work with both, uh, and we'll have to try to work around this contradiction, and that is as follows. Way, way later in the Torah, all the way... In deep into Pashas Matos, all right, so this is all the way at the end of the book of Numbers, we learn about the two and a half tribes that insisted on not entering Israel, remaining the Aver Hayardin on the other side of the Jordan. Those two and a half tribes are Ruvain, God, and then half of Menashe. All right, so Menashe is the older of the two sons of Yosef, half of his tribe. Uh, insisted on remaining on the other side of the Yardin River, not entering Israel. Now, the Rizal has very great secrets about these two and a half tribes, why they did not want to enter Israel. Um, I don't really need to get into Ruvain and Gud, uh, maybe for some other time. Uh, if you want a, a brief synopsis, Ruvain is because when... You, Ruvain was conceived of the union of Yaakov with Leah at the time when Yaakov didn't realize that he... He was under the impression that she was Rachel. Yeah, she was racial. So, so that confusion resulted in some sort of flaw within Ruvain. Uh, God has something similar, but we're not going to get into that. The point is Menashe. So Menashe, this is how it works. This is the math. So Menashe, it's only half the tribe. Half the tribe. So what's up with Menashe and what's up with half? So he says as follows. This is brilliant. It's Kabbalistically brilliant. It's, it's mathematically brilliant. Um, Menashe is the son of Joseph, son of Yosef. One of two sons. Right? Yosef two sons, he's one. Who did Yosef marry? Who was Menashe's mom? Rabbi Wolbi. 
Pop. Yeah, uh, Asnas. Asnas Bas Potifar, right. Oh, Asnas, yeah. Asnas. Okay, now, now, Asnas Bas Potifar, the daughter of Potifar, is really a misnomer, because she wasn't really, she was raised by Potifar, she wasn't really his daughter. Uh, whose daughter was she, Rabbi Wolby? <laughs> so we spoke about this in a Parsha podcast uh, many moons ago. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, she was the daughter of Dina. Uh, and her father, Shem. Exactly. <laughs> and so the brothers wanted to kill her. If I'm not mistaken, the brothers wanted to kill her. And Jacob made an amulet to protect her. And they sent it down to Egypt. And she was adopted by Potiphar and Mrs. Potiphar. And so she ended up marrying Joseph. So let's, let's, if we do the math here, Dina is assaulted by Shem. She actually becomes pregnant, bears a child, Asnas. That child, the brothers of uh, Joseph, so the sons of Jacob, the brothers of Dina, they're revolted by this child, that this child's going to be around them because this is like a living testament to this terrible crime. And this is, this is the influence of Shem. He, he's the dad. So they want to banish her. They want to kill her. Jacob protects her, sends her down to Egypt. She's adopted by Potiphar, who happens to be the same person who employs Joseph. And Mrs. Potiphar is the one who accuses Joseph or tries to seduce Joseph and ends up imprisoning him. And then after he comes out of jail and he is nominated to be the viceroy of Egypt, he is given a wife. And who's that? None other than his niece, Asnas, whose biological parents are Dina and Shem. Awesome. All right. It will be 10 points. Um, so Asnas. All right. So Asnas, the, the, the wife of Yosef, is the product of the union of Shechem and Dina. Now, says that Rizal, and here's where the contradiction comes in. He says that when Shechem had relations with Dina, it caused, and, and, and ultimately birthed uh, Asnas, she said, Asnas right now is half holy and half unholy, because mom is holy and dad is unholy. Okay, now, I, the reason why I say that that's something of a I guess it's not really a contradiction because the, the whole point was really that Dina should become entirely pure. But I, I guess even if Dina does, but Shechem remains impure, and so the product of the two of them will be, uh, it will be a combination of holy and unholy. Okay, so it's not much of a contradiction. The fact is, Asnas is a, ha- she's, a she's a half and half, right? She's a half blood, as they would say in Harry Potter, right? <laughs> half of her comes from Dina, half of her comes from Shechem. Okay, so she's 50-50. Now she goes ahead and she marries Yosef, Okay, who's the son of Yaakov and the son of Rachel, right? The union of Yaakov and Rachel doesn't get better than that. So Yosef is entirely holy. So now let's do some math. Yosef, it, it comes from holy dad, holy mom. Asnas comes from... 100% holy. 100% holy. But, but let's break it down. Dad, mom, because we, we need to get this into a quarter. So there's dad, there's mom on, on Joseph's side. Then there's dad, there's mom on Asnas' side. So... In, in Joseph's world, dad holy, mom holy. In Asnas's world, mom holy, dad super, super bad. Okay? So what you have there is three quarters holy, one quarter unholy. That's the math. Okay, now they have two sons. So let's divide it up. Menashe, who's the, who is the Bechor, okay? He's the oldest of the two sons. What's going to happen to him is that that one quarter unholiness of of mom, of, the, uh, of between mom and dad. <laughs> you get the math? Half of Asnas is unholy, which is a quarter of the entire union. So, and they have Menashe and Ephraim. So if you divide that up, what you get is half of Menashe 
will be unholy, the other half will be holy, and Ephraim, both halves will be holy. In other words, between the children of Joseph, if you distribute it, if you distribute the various qualities between the children of Joseph, you'll get that Manasseh has half of himself impure, compromised, spiritually compromised, while the other three quarters of the children will be fine. Does that make yeah, sense? It's a little, the, yeah, I, I know, a little convoluted map, but to simplify it, okay, of this union of Shem and Dina, okay, so you end up with half and half, and then you have Asnas, she's half and half, Joseph is 100% holy, so of that total, 75% is holy and 25% is not holy, and thus of the children, you'll have 75% is holy and 25% is not holy, and the way that breaks out, which I don't know why, but that's the way it breaks out, is that half of Manasseh is holy and half is not holy, and all of Ephraim is holy, and thus the half that ends up the other side of the Jordan, that doesn't end up in the land, the holy land that's proper, that is actually the remnant of Shechem. Right, exactly. The, the remnant of Shechem, the son of Hamor. Now, but let's let's connect that Arizal with the Arizal we learned earlier, which is that there was this Terach going on. This Terach was extracted, what was, was in Dina, was extracted by Shechem. Okay? Now, if we do the math, what comes out is like this. Terach is, he's kind of trickling his way down through the Jewish people, lands in Dina, Shechem takes it out, but they have this child named Asnas, half of Asnas is Shechem. So the Tarach remains in Asnas, filters down into half of Menashe. Okay, so we began this year by mentioning how we, the idea of the Haggadah, the idea of the Pesach story, is to extract that little Tarach inside of us. And we ask, why is Tarach still inside of us? The answer, I suggest, is because of Shechem and Asnas. Because of Shechem, handing it over to Asnas, who then handed it over to half of Manasseh. Manasseh is part of the Jewish people. He's one of the tribes. He leaves Egypt. So, so if I follow here, it just the, the history, the anthropology of Terach. Terach to Abraham's mom, somehow that jumps to Dina. Dina to Shechem, Shechem to Asnas, Asnas to half of Manasseh. That's the, the, the history, so to speak, uh, of this. And, that's, and, and the, 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 the remnant of, of Terach somehow in the Jewish family, in the Jewish world, is in the half of Manasseh that's in the side of the Jordan. Exactly. So it comes out that anyone listening to this podcast will sit down at the Pesach Seder and say, Guys, this is all about Manasseh. And any guest at the Pesach Seder who has not heard this podcast, which I can't imagine how that's even possible, they'll say, Huh? What on earth does Menashe have to do with this? And you'll say, what, what are you talking about? Of course, this whole thing is all about the tribe of Menashe, son of Joseph. If you can't figure that out yourself, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, but well, This is just so patently obvious. Everyone knew this before so they listened to the obvious. podcast. <laughs> okay, so, so just a few, uh, a few little tidbits to throw out there. So the idea here is that um, there, there's Terach, uh, and, then, and then there's Avram, and the, the name of the game is try to try to divide the Tarek from the Avram to get the Tarek out of there. Um, so just a quick amatria. Uh, Avram is 248. Tarek is 608. Will be's pulling out a pen and paper. He's he's not confident. He thinks I'm trying to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, Tarek is 608. The difference in gematria between 248 and 608 is 360. Which is exactly Gematria Shechem. You understand me? There's this divide between Tarach and Avram, and Shechem tries to bridge it. Shechem tries to bridge that uh, bridge that gap. 
What, what okay. I will tell you, I'm, I'm going off script here, but I was in Israel a couple of weeks ago, and you'll be very proud of me that I came up with my own gematria. I only had like a few gematria. You, you, you see letters and you right away see the gematria. I would have to, it would take me like an hour to do that, to just figure out and to think um, that the difference between Abraham and Terach is Shechem. You know, which is uh, an incredible thing. But I did come up with my own dramatic. I'll tell it to you afterwards. After oh, the show. Okay. Oh, you, okay. Oh, you got my <laughs> We're going to have to finish this year really quickly because I'm, I'm itching to hear it. All right. Um, we are. We're coming to it. This is going to be a pretty short year. Okay. Um, and another interesting thing to point out is just that uh, if you just look at the Pesukim in Lech Lecha, right? So Parshish Lech Lecha is wherever Hashem tells Ram, leave. Go to Israel. Leave your father's house. Leave your home. Leave your city. Leave your father's house. And what does it say, Rabbi The first thing it says, it says, um, It's literally the first place Avram goes to is Shechem. Now, I can't imagine how geographically that would make sense. Uh, I'm not a geography buff, but I can't imagine that where Avram was coming from, the first place you're going to confront is Shechem. Shechem is not on the border, right? So he just like charged straight forward, straight to Shechem. And to the city of Shechem, which again, it's confusing because the individual named Shechem lived in the city of Shechem. Right, Shechem lived in Shechem, exactly. So, and, and Rashi tells us, why did he go to Shechem? To pray for the tribes when they go to war uh, with Shechem, which happens by the story of Dina. Very, very obscure. It seems like it's uppermost in Avram's mind, this battle between the, um, the brothers, the, the tribes and Shechem. It really seems that way. I mean, he, that's the first thing he does very first thing he does and according to us maybe a little bit of the insight is god says leave your father's house right that doesn't just mean your father's physical house it means everything your father represents leave it behind and he's like okay but the first thing i got to do then is i got to fight shem because shem is the one who is trying to obstruct that transition or, or the definition of him leaving his father is abandoning shem or, or or relegating shem or rectifying shem Exactly. And therefore, exactly. and therefore, the fulfillment of leaving your father is to go to Shechem and take care of business. Yeah, that's another way of putting it, exactly. And uh, I think there might be something there. Uh, maybe we'll work on that more when it comes to Parshas Lech Lecha. Well, I will tell you, uh, two years ago in the Parsha podcast on Parshas Lech Lecha, I had a question at the end of the show. And the question was, why did Abraham go to Shechem? Like, why is it the first place you have to go? So I think this is uh, an answer that uh, uh, would uh, be very much germane to that. I want to throw out one uh, one cute thought, uh, is that, so again, the, the whole idea we were trying to say about the Seder is that there's this one quarter terach that's still inside of us. Now, it's just so interesting because when you talk about the Seder and I say there's one quarter evil, what is what is that, what, what does, what immediately comes to mind? Well, the, the four sons. Exactly, the four sons, you have one quarter that's evil. Uh, again, I have no idea if this is accurate if this is truthful but it's just really cool to point out that uh, there's one quarter evil that we're talking about and, and many people say that and, and, and what do they tell him what do they tell him they, they try to we try to excommunicate him to a certain degree we try to expunge him we try to remove him we try to say well it's for us and it's not for you and if you were there we would have gotten rid of you and that's almost like a, an uncomfortable thing like you know how do we you know, divorce ourselves disengage ourselves from one of our children but uh, on this philosophical level there's a quarter so to speak that we're trying to get rid of so to speak on uh, on Pesach night and that's uh, a central theme beneath the surface in the in the subtext of the Haggadah exactly okay so now let's circle back to the story of the rabbis who spent the Seder night with Rabbi Akiva there's a very interesting comment that Rabbi Akiva makes so Rabbi Akiva has a kind of a checkered past, right? So he started only started learning Torah at age 40. 
Until then, not only was he ignorant, but he himself describes that he abhorred Torah scholars. So this is a Gemara in, in Pesachim, on page 49b, where Rabbi Akiva says, back in the day, you know, back in the, in, in the bad old days when I was uh, an, a very ignorant person, I would say, me yiteng li tamad chacham, who will give me a tamad chacham? Who will give me a Torah, a Torah scholar? And I will bite him like a donkey. Okay? Fascinating stuff. I'll bite him like a donkey. Now, I believe, again, it's the Arizal. Gotta love the Arizal. I, I did not look this up this time. I, I have other uh, Divrei Torah that have to, based on this Gemara, so I've looked it up in the past, I believe. But I do, I, I am pretty sure that someone comments that, that the reason why Rabbi Akiva specifically uses the metaphor of a donkey is because Rabbi Akiva's soul also emanates from that place of Shechem ben Chamor. Remember, so Shechem, the son of Chamor. And, and the word Chamor means a donkey, just the, for... Yeah, exactly, the word Chamor means a donkey. And, and Rabbi Akiva, I think the, part of the challenge of his life was because, because he comes from such an unsavory source, and his the whole purpose of his life is to try to like pull himself out of it, overcome those challenges... But back before he became a Torah scholar, he was still living in that world of Chamor, of Shechem ben Chamor. Ultimately, he overcomes it and becomes the great Rabbi Akiva. That's specifically why he uses the uh, the metaphor of Chamor. Now, can I jump in here? Yeah, sure. We know he's called Akiva ben Yosef. Could we say that just like the you know Joseph was the one who cleansed, so to speak, or or he's part of this process of the rectification of Shechem? Akiva, who comes from the Chamor, he's Ben Yosef as well. He kind of takes the lesson yeah, from Joseph. That's for sure. That's for sure something there. That's for sure. Wait, did you not? There. Did you think of that? Do you think of that? I, I, I didn't think. I, I actually didn't think <laughs> of that that exact uh, variation. I, I did have something. There's no question that Akiva Ben Yosef is a reference to Yosef Hatzadik. It doesn't the original Joseph. Joseph. Yeah. Right. Anyways, okay. Moving along. Now, and now I'm taking everything into my own hands. I will not blame this on the Arizal. Uh, so if if this, if you have any problems with it. Just come to me. Uh, and that is that the word Menasha is exactly Gematria Rabbi Akiva. I did the math. And 395. 395. You did the math? Right. I just did it, yeah. Okay. Now, what, the point being here is that if it's true, and this, I think the result does say, that, that Rabbi Akiva comes from Chamor, and his life's mission was to, like you say, expunge, extract that little poison from Shechem ben Chamor that somehow managed to filter into the Jewish people, it makes perfect sense that Rabbi Kiva's name should be the same Gematria as Menashe, because like we said, it only came via Menashe, right? The venom of Shechem, Ben Chamor, managed to make its way into the Jewish people through Menashe, right? It went from Shechem to Asnas to Menashe. Rabbi Kiva, who's from the same place, his soul originates from Chamor, uh, it, his name is Gematria Menashe. So you can disagree with me, but I feel like there is a very valid connection there. So it's Rabbi Akiva's responsibility, ultimately, to help us accomplish our goal, right? Our goal of the night of Pesach is to take that little piece of Tarach that's inside of us from Menashe and transform it into holiness. Who is good at that? Who knows how to do that? Who has that talent? Rabbi Akiva, the one whose name is Gematria Menashe, the one who comes from Chamor, the one who successfully managed to become one of the greatest Torah scholars in our history, even with all of these spiritual impediments. Right? So he, he's the model of what we're supposed to try to do ourselves over the course of Pesach and the course of the Seder. 
because he himself went through that same transformation where he started off as the Chamor wanting to bite the Torah scholar and break their bones and became the great sage and the uh, the purveyor of oral Torah and uh, the you know the greatest of, of his generation. Exactly. So with that, I want to suggest that that's the answer to why all the sages went to Rabbi Akiva for his Pesach Seder. It wasn't just because they, I don't know, want to spend time together or want to learn Torah from each other. They were all more than capable of being able to conduct their own Seder. They went to Rabbi Kiva because Rabbi Kiva is, he is the very paradigm of what the Seder is. He's not just doing it, he, he's living it. Rabbi Kiva's life is the Pesach Seder. He's getting rid of the Terach every, all day, every day, from that Terach that's inside of him, the Menasha, the Menasha struggle. Rabbi Kiva is the ultimate paradigm of someone who was able to successfully accomplish that. And that's all we're trying to do. The Pesach Seder, which makes perfect sense, why the rabbis wanted to spend Pesach with him. Now let's go to the next question, which is, why did the students come and say, um, it, it's time to say, right? They said, Rabbi, stop saying uh, the Pesach story, stop telling over the Pesach story, it's time to recite the Kriyashima of the morning. And our question was, why don't you just like qu- quit the poetry and just say, it's the morning, it's, it's the sun is shining. So now here's something which I want to suggest, maybe I will claim it to be slightly ingenious, and sorry, and that is that the Gemara in Brachos, and this is page 9b, it discusses various different opinions as to when you can recite the Kriya Shema of the morning. And all of the opinions really focus on the same idea, which is that it has to be light enough to be able to distinguish between two different properties. So there's one opinion that you have to be able to see the difference between the color blue and the color green, which is hard because if it was if it was entirely dark, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between blue and green. Another opinion is a little more lenient. Uh, it says it's a difference between blue and white, right? Okay, so blue and white, you only need a little bit of light to be able to tell that difference. Now, Rabbi Akiva weighs in. And Rabbi Akiva says, no, you know, you have to be able to tell the difference between a chamor and an arod. Between a chamor, a donkey, and an arod, which is, Rashi says, a wild donkey. Okay? A chamor bar, Rashi tells us. I don't know exactly what an arod is. Um, but it, it's a different form of chamor. And according to us, perhaps there's a real secret here. Rabbi Kiva was saying that Kriya Shema, right, the declaration of God's oneness, that happens, you, you are able to successfully recite Kriya Shema and accomplish what Kriya Shema is supposed to accomplish when you can distinguish between a chamor that is good and a chamor that is evil. Meaning the point here is that Ryukiva comes from chamor. Okay, he comes from that place of chamor. The name of the game is not, okay, we're going to revise everything we said until now. It's not to expunge or expel that chamor. It's to elevate it and to uplift it and to bring the chamor into a, a place of holiness. That's the difference between a chamor and a chamor bar, right? an arod, which is an evil chamor. That's the, the shechem ben chamor that attacked Dina. There's a way to take that and elevate it into something that Rabbi Akiva himself personified. Now, we're going we're to explain this in a minute. But am I making sense that this is what Rikiva might be saying when he says the difference So if, if, I can, if I can maybe give some some poetry of my own for this, like Messiah is going to arrive on a chamor, on a donkey. So there's there's a version of chamor that is a, a tool and an aid and a contributor towards the, the mission of Messiah. And that's, and that's the kind of the best version of a donkey. 
And the problem is when the donkey goes wild and it's 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 awry and it and it's it's rebellious and it's wild and it wants to bite people and and harm them and hurt them instead of being there as a way to kind of bear the load of the Torah of Issachar. Nice Issachar, Issachar, or, or or to to bear the load of Messiah and and to usher in or to be to be a contributor towards the um, uh, perfection of humanity. Uh, it can go wild and start breaking bones. And, and, and that subtle difference, that is the Shema. Exactly. Now, if, if I so, could jump in, I, I think you have this later on in your notes, but I, I, w- I think it's pertinent over here. Um, when Rabbi Kiva was ultimately killed, he was reciting the Shema. And I don't want to you know, jump the gun here, but when his students asked him, why are you saying there's the Shema now? So he responded, that every day I would say the Shema, and in the Shema you say, if love God, bechol nafshcha, with all your soul, which means even if God takes away your soul, if love God. And I would say, when can I finally fulfill this and give up my life in martyrdom for God? And now that I have the opportunity to finally give up a life when the Romans were, were flaying his skin, killing him in a very macabre and brutal fashion— he was excited and eager to finally fulfill what he's been pining for, hoping for, yearning for every single morning, every single day. So maybe, again, this is some commentary here, but maybe when Rabbi Akiva was saying the Shema, he was hoping to give up his life for God. He was hoping to kind of sacrifice his life for God. Maybe that is the ultimate, so to speak, cleansing of the vestiges of the Chamor, by dedicating your life, your, your physicality, your, your bodily reality, your animalistic self, to dedicate that to God, that's the ultimate rectification of this Hamar. And, and for Rabbi Akiva, every single morning, he's like, when's my opportunity? Like the, the Shema was a way for him to actually simulate that. And therefore, maybe, this is just me speculating, and I, you know, you come to my podcast, I have, <laughs> you give me a microphone, I'm not going to keep quiet. Maybe... The student said to him, you're telling the story of the Exodus. And that's an incredible way to kind of remove, so to speak, this influence. But you know what's even a better way to remove this influence? To recite the Shema and to simulate in your mind, that's a higher level, so to speak, of, of, of expunging, of, of extricating, of, of divesting yourself of the Hamar. And therefore, it's actually an upgrade to now continue on. Okay, you did that the whole night, but now you have an opportunity to do even more of that with the Shema. That's excellent. That is beautiful. Beautifully articulated, and uh, it's, it's wonderful thoughts. Uh, I, I just add for, for, the, for, the, for the listeners, so the word chamor, which means donkey, also means uh, chomer, which, which literally means physicality. So again, the, it's exactly what you just said. It's sacrificing your entire physicality uh, for the sake of Hashem via the Shema. All right, so, so we're basically coming to an end here. What, what I wanted to point out is that, uh, like we said, we're maschilin be. Beginai, we begin with the, the more the denigrated, denigrating part of our history. right? We we conclude with the shvach, which is the more praiseworthy elements of our story. And the word shvach, of course, is the Rashi Tevos, an acronym for Shechem Ben Chamor. <laughs> uh, right? We conclude the Haggadah, having rectified the Shechem Ben Chamor uh, within us. Wait, wait, can we also say, and we're Messiah, we end Shvach. Oh, great. Oh, that is so great. <laughs> uh, the word that Messiah means to end. Messiah, uh, right. we, we, we get rid of this Shvach, this, which again, the thrills of Shin, Aves, Ches is Shem Ben Hamor, Messiah, Beshvach. 
I like that. Um, another, again, another just cute little remez, and I, I didn't look up this first. I should have, which is uh, back when Paro was insisting on insisting on not sending the Jewish people out. He kept saying uh, they must work with the Teven, work with the Teven, right, with the grain, give them more, give them more. And Te- Teven is the Teven, straw where that that Mo- Moshe straw, right. when Moshe initially went. Uh, Pharaoh, instead of releasing them, he made it worse, and he withheld the tevin, the straw, from the the critical ingredients in the in the brick making process. Right. So, but but according to us, the word tevin is is an acronym for uh, Terach ben Nachor, right? Terach's dad's name was Nachor. So Pharaoh was like, "No, no, the Jews can't go free. We need more Terach. We need more Terach ben Nachor." <laughs> These are all just little cute uh, cute additions. And then when the Jewish people finally do leave uh, and they carry the matzah on their shoulders, what does the verse say? Or will be, what's the term the verse, verse uses? You tell they me. They carry the matzah al-shechmam, on their shoulders, right? But of course, according to us, it doesn't mean on their shoulders. It means they carried it on the shechem inside of them. Uh, right, the story of the Exodus uh, allowed them to overcome the shechem and, and the chamor. And of course, that's what Rabbi Akiva represents. And at the end of the day, the moral of the story is Pesach is all about getting rid of the Terach that managed to filter into our nation through Menashe. And the expert at doing that is Rabbi Akiva, which is why we tell the story of Rabbi Akiva at the Pesach Seder. And Rabbi Akiva, the, the, the ultimate moment where Rabbi Akiva is able to do that is when he recites Kriya Shema in the morning, which is, according to his opinion, when you can identify, you have enough light to identify the difference to distinguish between the chamor, the good chamor, and the bad chamor. And, and we could say on a very basic level, like that's the matzah versus the chametz. You know, the, 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 the matzah is this, is this refined, purified, chametz-free food, and that's symbolic of this kind of purification cleansing process that we're trying to do to get rid of that, you know, that, that quarter, so to speak, uh, the, the half of Menashe, the quarter of, uh, uh, that comes from uh, Abraham's father and mother and Shechem and Hamor and all that. There's a little bit of that left, and uh, the objective of our festival, really, really our lives, right, is, is to kind of go through the process of extricating ourselves from the tentacles of the Hamar, the Shechem, the Chametz, the Terach that's within us. All right. All right. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't as long as some of the others, just about half an hour. But This but, is um, perfect. It's not a half okay. hour. It's 45 minutes of my... Uh, my, uh, my uh, oh, clock. all right. Okay. I lost track of time. Um, but uh, all right. I, I hope... Uh, this was incredible. I, this you. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed it. I think it was uh, magisterial as we've come to expect. Thank you so much, Robert Botnick, for coming to, on the podcast and sharing the secrets of the Haggadah. Uh, again, a much deeper level, much more esoteric level than any of us are accustomed to. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity and privilege to have you on the show. And uh, hopefully next month, the month of ER, we'll get back to the secret of the month. Uh, please, God. And uh, your email address is? B-O-T-N-I-C-K-S-M at gmail.com. And my email address is rabbitroom.com. Thanks so much for listening. From the incredible podcast studios of the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, Rabbi Botnick is in Cincinnati, and we're doing this via the magic of Zoom and, uh, and uh, simultaneous uh, recording. Uh, hopefully it comes out it comes out good. But thank you for listening. Have an incredible Pesach, an uplifting Pesach, a meaningful uh, Pesach, uh, a kosher Pesach, and uh, please God, uh, this will be a year of redemption for all of us. My email address is rabbitwalmajim.com. Happy Passover to all of you and yours. <laughs>